Hello and welcome to another episode of What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me today are Sharon Kamathi, my editor at Fintech Futures. Hello. And Matthew Sattler, Director of Business Development and Data Science, Data and Analytics at HSBC. Hello, Alex. Hey. So we are recording this podcast during a blazing heat wave in London. So listeners know if we say anything you disagree with, you can pretend it was because of the heat and not because of our horrible opinions. Uh, this week on the podcast, we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence, its progress in the industry, its status as a buzzword, and its potential for the future. Before we get to that, however, we're going to be doing the week in numbers. This is where we pick out some number-focused news from the past week or so that have caught our eyes and discuss them in detail. Uh, Matt, since you're our guest, you have the honor of going first. So what number has caught your eye uh, over the past week or so? Yes. So, Alex, my number is 9.29, and that's billion. And this number represents the amount of funding that has gone to fintech over the past quarter. So this is between April and June. Now, this is interesting because in Q1, the numbers were about $7.9 billion. When you read into this a bit further, I think what I've found interesting about this is although we saw an increase in the amount of funding that has gone to fintech, the amount of deals has actually gone down. And so the number has fell from 452 in Q1 to 397. And so these the amount of deals and you know the these mega deals are really starting to, to swallow up the amount of funding that's happening in Q2. Although we, we've started to see this, this decrease in this pace pre-COVID and back in, in 2019. Further within this, I think what uh, what really stood out to me within the overall Q2 and the amount of funding that did go out to fintech was specifically around this 310 million that has gone out to these payment fintech, which are offering integration services, and specifically the, the call out of, of two companies, Airwallex and, and Checkout.com. There's certainly a growing trend, and especially to call out one of them and. Uh, Air Wallets, there is a, a growing need and a growing trend for this cross-border currency management. You know, certainly the, the two that catch your eye uh, throughout day-to-day uh, -day business is your Revoluts and TransferWise, but there's also other platforms that, that I'm certainly looking into, like Payoneer, and really looking to solve the, these global inefficiencies and really connecting a lot of these domestic payment systems. So within that, 9.29 billion, that 310 to these companies is really what, what caught my eye. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned that it's mainly these payment services and cross-border currency management services. Um, since the larger funding rounds are mainly by a select few that dominated the whole um, capital raised, so like Starling Bank, Revolut, Checkout.com, and on Fido, who all raised money that exceeded $100 million, um, comprising 47% of the total raised, um, according to Innovate Finance. And the funding in the second half of this um, is looking like it's going towards more established fintechs as well. Um, so those that are helping businesses adapt to trends accelerated by the pandemic, stuff like digital channels that can help with 
branch closures or reg tech and cybersecurity to help with the rise in cyber attacks since the pandemic started, since there has been a spike in cyber attacks. Um, and also early stage fintechs are starting to look like they'll suffer a little bit um, from a lack of financing. Um, it looks like fintechs who have a large customer base and a proven business are the ones that will survive this, um, whilst less established ones will probably struggle to raise funds and sadly maybe go out of business. But I, I don't know, maybe I'm being a Debbie Downer. What do you think, Alex? But yeah, I mean, I was going to say something pretty similar as well. I think that we're seeing um, perhaps we're seeing a lot of big, big ticket deals because I would assume, you know, these deals take the longest to set up and they've been under the under the hood for a while now sort of bubbling away, whereas the smaller raises, which happen quite quickly, um, probably are going to be the most affected by the you know, the whole upheaval that has been the coronavirus pandemic. And I, I agree. I think that we're going to see companies that have been uh, have raised substantial amounts of money in the past few years, survive pretty well, maybe raise a bit more money to just to ensure that they're, you know, they they have enough uh, capital to to keep going. And I think the the little ones, I mean, <laughs> as much as you can say a million dollars here and there is, is a small amount of money, but the smaller ones are the ones who are going to uh, to end up suffering a little bit. I think. And I think we're going to see a lot of, maybe not a lot, but we're going to see a regularity of big deals in the 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 big tens to the hundreds of millions and not so many smaller raises as companies struggle to really prove um, funds and venture capital firms that they need, that they are the ones to, that deserve their funding. Uh, but uh, speaking of hundreds of millions, uh, always a smooth segue into my uh, week in numbers story. Uh, <laughs> Very natural. Yeah, Very. I know. That's fine. We won't need to fix that in editing. Uh, it is a cool round 100 million, my number. Uh, it's the amount of money which Apple has reportedly stumped up to acquire the paytech firm MobiWave. Um, MobiWave is a uh, tech firm that allows users to turn their smartphone into a payment terminal um, by setting an amount on the device and allowing another uh, another user to tap their card or their own mobile phone on the device and process the payment. Uh, based in Montreal and founded in 2011, it's raised about uh, $25 million over four funding rounds, uh, raised $3.5 million in January 2019. That was its last funding. Now, obviously, mobile phones have been involved in payments for, uh, it seems like a long time, but you know we use uh, NFC technology to enable things like Google Pay, Apple Pay, Samsung Pay, et al. But what MobiWave does is uh, sort of democratize the payments terminal system and offer merchants on a budget a chance to take payments on a smartphone instead of having to pay for um, more expensive hardware. Uh, now, this is interesting because it's the same business model as Square, um, which reached that ridiculous uh, $55 billion valuation at the start of July. And as by all accounts, been one of the fintech success stories by spotting that gap in the market. And also, interestingly, uh, Apple's competitor, Samsung, is also an existing investor in MobiWave through its venture arm. Uh, and partnered with the company last year uh, to develop the software on its own platform. Uh, what with the launch of the Apple Card going fairly swimmingly for Apple, and uh, it's probably another sign of tech companies stretching their wings within the financial services sector. I mean, knowing Apple, uh, the solution is likely to be pretty closed loop within its own software and hardware. But when you consider you know, the, the captive user base that company has, it's probably not too bothered by any drawbacks 
that might have. But yeah, it's an interesting uh, play from Apple, but a more interesting play. But um, yeah, Sharon, what, what are your thoughts on, on this this uh, this acquisition? Yeah, I thought it's essentially, you know, standard big tech sort of grabbing up what it can in order to make their um, tech look more established. Um, it, there's been a lot of M&A activity, surprisingly enough, um, although it's not looking so hot or at least not as hot as it was or at least as it is right now physically. Um, according to White and Case Law Firm, the first six months of 2020 registered a massive drop in M&A activity. So the total value of deals announced in the first half of 2020, both completed and pending, was $901.7 billion US dollars, which is 53% below the same period the year before and the lowest half yearly total since um, the first half of 2010. Um, so volume, however, has also fallen, sadly, uh, by 32% year on year to 6,943 deals. And that's the lowest half yearly volume since um, the first half of 2013. Uh, but this has not stopped the big techs going on a shopping spree. Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Microsoft have announced 19 deals this year, according to Refinitiv data from this year. And that represents the fastest pace of acquisitions to date since 2015. So although they are like lower, there still are quite a lot and, and they're happening at a, a very fast pace. Um, and they are looking like they want to consolidate industries such as cloud computing um, and such. And it's odd because these big techs are making these moves despite growing concerns in Washington about the monopolistic power um, during the recent antitrust hearings that we saw in America. Uh, but Matt, did you have any thoughts and feels about this? So I think mine, Sharon, is very close to yours. I also do want to touch upon, Alex, what you brought up but very much on what you're seeing in the market on consolidation of big tech firms, but also the integration and certainly a lot of the cross-industry collaboration within financial services. So, for example, when you look at Apple acquiring MobiWave, you know, Alex, you brought up the, the key piece around removing the need of some of these other pieces of hardware Know, such as your dongles and things that would make it pretty inconvenient for a, a user to be using the services. But also, Apple, you know, is no, uh, this isn't their first time going into financial services and specifically with, you know, their partnership with, with Goldman Sachs. So you certainly are seeing a trend. This is, this is nothing out of the ordinary. But, you know, given the technology that they're using with NFC and the, the rise, the, the complementary rise of 5G networks, certainly the usage of smartphones as not only just a phone, but also a payment platform and anything that's trying to improve the convenience of using that is, is certainly trying to get ahead of the field. And so when you look at this, there, there's certainly no surprise, but clearly that in combination with, with the infrastructure that's being built out across these various networks and specifically 5G it's certainly no surprise that that Apple would make a move like this. Excellent. So uh, we come to our final week in numbers story, uh, which uh, has been bouncing around the Twitter sphere for for a while the past week. Um, and of course, Sharon is completely on top of it. 
Uh, yep. So, Sharon, what do you tell us about your number? <laughs> I'm very much on top of the situation, just looking out from the mountaintop as all these challenges tumble down. So, Starling Bank um, had losses that doubled up to 52 million. So, that is my figure, by the way. It's 52 million. Um, these figures were in its uh, annual report for 2019 as the company hired hundreds of employees and focused on attracting new customers. But it's not the only challenger bank facing some tough challenges. So Revolut's losses trebled in 2019 to 104.7 million, and that's in Starling as well. Um, following a year of rapid growth, which saw the UK challenger hire 1,628 more staff, as well as launch in the US and Singapore. This is up from 32.8 million, again, that's in British Sterling, um, in losses the previous year. Revolut's 2019 financial results fit into the pattern of its other UK competitors. To Monzo. Monzo also had losses that more than doubled to 113.8 million. And despite this, the challengers have managed to kind of claw up their revenues. So Starling brought in revenues of 14.2 million, which is a steep increase from the previous year's revenues of 750,000. And Revolutes was up by 162.7 million in 2019 from 58.2 million in 2018, whilst Monzo's increased to 56 million from 13 million in 2018. So they are managing to bring up their revenues, but their losses often boil down to staff costs, marketing spend, and ultimately not having what these standard incumbents have, and that's mortgage books. Um, although Starling is dabbling into lending um, through its partnership with Funding Circle through the Coronavirus Business Interruption Loan Scheme, it's not quite enough to get it out of the red. I know that those are a lot of numbers to, to put out there and definitely a lot for me to say. Um, and they're not looking great for these challenges. But what do you think? Will they survive this recession, Alex? <laughs> wow. Big question. So just, well, wasn't <laughs> I, prepared for that. I was going to ask that. <laughs> no, uh, I, it, it's, it's been an incredible, uh, it's been an incredible fire to watch from the sidelines on Twitter uh, as these challenger banks release these figures. Um, lots of back and forth between various people, either in the know or not in the know about what this means for various companies hinging over uh, the phrase um, material uncertainties um, which is, I think, the the one that uh, Monzo used in, as to its business model. Uh, it's 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 a, it, it, you have to talk about this every time you talk about challenger banks. You know the the issue is uh, of user retention and deposits, um, and uh, it's 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 a it's a unique situation we're in right now, and the aftermath of which we'll be feeling for a long time which will has really thrown the business model that a lot of challenger banks rely on into question. Um, people aren't depositing, depositing a lot of money into uh, what they may see, uh, the users may see as a, uh, a digital wallet or an account that isn't, a, in their eyes, in air quotes I'm using here, a, a proper current account. So a lot of them are seeing a lot of stagnant accounts where there's low amounts of money left in them as people sort of gravitate towards traditional banks because of that legacy of sort of safety and stability. And uh, I think it's it's not necessarily the challenger bank's fault. Um, I think it's natural human um, conservatism to want to shy away from new things when, when bad things happen. Uh, but I think this will be a challenge that the the tide of challenger banks we always cover um, will struggle with. And we, we see plenty of them going out of business anyway without 
uh, such dire times. And I think the big names will struggle and they'll come through it. But what they look like when they come through it will be a very different beast to what they were before COVID-19 happened. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, no pressure, Matt, because as the person from HSBC, but what, what's your, your, uh, your opinion on, on how things are shaping out for the, for the new banks on the block with COVID-19 and, and the challenges that come around that? Yeah, and Sharon, you touched upon it in the beginning. To me, the, the key thing to look out for is, is their lending book. And as you mentioned, although it has grown from $100 million to $1 billion, you have to, to look into the quality of that lending book. And if there is certainly one thing that we are learning throughout the COVID process and navigating the uncertainties of the future is what is, how, what is the quality of that to which you have lent. And, you know, you couple with that to Alex, what you had brought up around the, the overall deposit, uh, the, the deposit industry in, in general. So when I'm looking at a lot of these challenger banks, who are looking at complementary products to a lending book, it first starts with how good is the quality of that lending book in general. So I think that's going to be the key to, to look out for, not just with Starling Bank, but across any of these challenger banks uh, across the globe. Now we enter part two of the podcast where we open up the discussion on a specific industry topic. I mentioned earlier that we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence, and I also need to give Sharon the props she deserves for titling this topic in our notes as Transformers More Than Meets the AI. Um, <laughs> could not let that one go go without being mentioned. Um, before we dive deep into this topic, however, I want to give Matt the chance to go over his role at HSBC, uh, the kinds of developments that are underway at the bank and what he's involved in right now. So Matt, if you'd like to, to take it away. Sure. So I think it's important for me to, to say a little bit about my journey as it certainly has been far from ordinary, especially within our field. And so for me, it's all started from two or three of us in a very little room. Definitely had air conditioning, though. I will say that. Um, but with a lot of big ideas. And it was all around the premise of building out a, a new data science machine learning capability, which most importantly is looking to drive tangible value back to our customers and, and even more importantly, our internal staff. When we say value, I just really want to, and say tangible value, really explain what that means. And, and so that could be anything from a process that could take days and getting that down to hours. It could be from offering more personalized services back to our customers based upon their specific needs. And so my role with growing that over, over years and, you know, into a few of our different countries and regions that, that we, that we operate in at HSBC and now running this on a global scale is all about transforming how our business operates to offering these new products and services to our clients and our internal staff. And so from that small room where we are now a global organization, 
and we are building and making these data fueled products. And so, you know, coupling that with the news bit, as you asked around, you know, overall developments and implementation projects, one of the keys to this success from the very beginning is partnering with an AI startup company, which really focused on building the overall platform and more of using artificial intelligence, machine learning to clean and organize our data. It's one thing to have a lot of data, which we do, but it's just as fundamental to having good quality data. And to be able to do that at scale is absolutely critical to having a successful data business. And so that's really been the key. And my job is to run that and really derive that value back. Yeah, and speaking of keys to success, as you mentioned, um, and these partnerships, we've seen that innovation labs, accelerators, hubs, incubators, you name it, recently came under fire for their low success rates. According to a report from Capgemini, the vast majority of innovation labs, up to 90%, one expert says, failed to deliver on their promise. So what makes HSBC's innovation lab different? So... I can only speak to what we do. And what I can say is from the very beginning, we've treated this as a business. And so let me dive into that a bit and explain what I mean that we treated this as a business. All of our internal stakeholders, we've treated as investors, our staff members who who really have these key problems to which they need new cutting edge solutions. We've treated them as our customers and we've built out really three main objectives Number one is having a clear return on investment. From the very beginning, this was something that was super important to us is we would need to assure that we could derive the ROI back to the business. Number two is growing a data balance sheet. And, and we really we, we treat it as a balance sheet. And so let me just explain what that means, especially to those that have never heard data and balance sheet you know, really next to each other. I don't think it's, it's natural to say that. And, you know, you might hear it as data as an asset. And so what I really mean by that and some of the keys to that formula is not only collecting a ton of data, because at HSBC, we have a ton of data and not just say financial data, but a lot of different data sets. But it's also, and as I mentioned in the beginning, those processes of making that data clean and usable. You know, the old saying, or the, the, the fun article of, you know, data is the new oil, but data has to be put and made into a usable asset. And, and that takes processes. And so for us, managing those expectations and putting those processes in place to turning data, which in its raw state is not always usable, especially in industry, uh, into to something that is and can derive value. Number three is, is having a pulse on what our customers need. And so, again, when I say customer, not just our external customers, but our internal staff, as they are our customers, and that's not always what they want. It's what they need. It's the problems that they have. And so, for us, our data strategy was always tightly connected with our business strategy. They have to work hand in hand. And we did that by design from the very beginning. And so... I think that was a long way of me really, you know, going around some of the key objectives that we've had that has made this a a success. And that is all about delivering ROI, you know, just to to round this out, because it, it would be, you know, remiss not to bring up the how a bit more. 
And in order to doing it and making it real, and, and I'll keep saying making it real, that's certainly something that sticks in my head, is that you need a, a people culture, which enables a true, genuine team capability. And that has to come coupled with diverse thinking and collaboration. And so whatever you call it, data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence, emerging tech, whichever, building this capability, uh, this team capability is absolutely critical to adding that value back to the business. This, these types of tools and this type of capability, it's a team game. It's certainly not an individual's game. And so assuring that you have the right team and, and the right people strategy is super critical to making it real. So again, just to, to really summarize, you have you know, a team capability that's supporting each other because there's wins and losses. Uh, so having a team that is supporting each other, offering different viewpoints and, and working together, coupled with really focusing on ROI and treating it as a business is, and, and you know, making this data balance sheet is really some of the keys to our formula. And you mentioned working together and team capability. So how many startups have landed commercial contracts with the bank? And out of that number, how many of them focus on using artificial intelligence? Yeah, so so Sharon, what I would say is, so HSBC works with, you know, dozens of, of startups and, you know, really a handful of them are focusing on using artificial intelligence and machine learning. You know, back in even 2018, as we were really accelerating the launch of our lab and, and our capability, we launched an external campaign where we went to the market. We, we scanned for a lot of these leading companies in different aspects of, of, again, building that data business and really helping be a part of, of our growing ecosystem. And I think ecosystem is probably the best word I can say because it really is a bunch of companies, individuals, and capabilities coming together and integrating. And so I think integrating is another key word. And so what's more important than the, the numbers of, 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 of the companies that we are working with, what I would really stress to anyone listening and really anyone who is in a position to work with startups, the you know, decision-making on which startups to bring into your organization uh, would certainly be the following. It's one, making sure you're choosing the right partners. And, and as I was just saying before, really thinking about integration. And so choosing the right partners and integration are, are really two key critical thought processes that you need to have as a decision maker when, when choosing to work with these startup companies, which can really help to accelerate your capabilities. And so, again, for us, the, the, the space is really growing. We talked about it in the news articles in, in the beginning, the, the, the space for, for startups and fintech and the amount of investment that's going into has ex exponentially grown over the past handful of years, although we're seeing some of the numbers stall, as, as we just talked about. But with that explosion of companies and companies that have branded themselves as artificial intelligence and machine learning companies and startups taking the time to evaluate them from strategy to culture to capability it is super, super critical. And so this is what we've done from the beginning uh, and really scanning the market from the, the large number of potential partners. 
And on episode 10 of this podcast, we recently unpacked the discriminatory tendencies against people of color, women, and other marginalized groups that lies within the use of AI. So what is HSBC doing to address this or combat this? Yeah, so so one, when it comes to AI, I think any business that demonstrates clear ethical principles in the way that they use the technology and the data have the opportunity to really differentiate themselves in the, in the, the following years. When it comes to us, uh, you, you've, I'm sure you've heard and familiar with AI ethics and even a lot of great new research that's come out around explainability. For us, this is very much part of our culture. AI explainability, model explainability, understanding the data that you've used in order to creating a decision, understanding the features that have been most important in that decision-making process, the quality of that data, and even which is sometimes missed, which is super important, is the potential biases that are in that historical data. So when what we coach and what we preach to any one of our staff members that are building uh, decision-making artificial intelligence models and products is to really understand the data that's going in, the features that you're using. And, and so explainability has to be a core to that. And, and these are the principles, part of the principles that we built out in HSBC and how we do data analytics. And so we definitely have to use that to address unfair bias in the decision-making Really, it, it all comes down to personal responsibility and accountability and really contributing back to the development of these best practices. And so I'll just end on one more thing. Fairness is, is certainly for us another key principle. So machine learning programs that are analyzing historical data, uh, anything that's really trying to predict the future, uh, again, as we talked about and, and what we really talked about in the beginning was understanding these potential biases that have been in this historical data. And so for any practitioner that is using these products, it's really taking the time to understand that and know what you're doing uh, and and having that personal accountability in, in any of the models that you're building out. So AI has many challenges as we just covered, but what is the biggest challenge facing AI adoption at HSBC? Is it upskilling workers? Is that potentially one of them? So I have a, a bit of a different spin on that. Um, I think when you have successfully developed artificial intelligence or machine learning products, one of the successes of that is those customers and users don't even really know the difference. And what I mean by that is, is that seamless integration into their normal day-to-day. Part of our job is how do we make their life easier and not necessarily harder. And that's it's, it's easier said than done. But what I mean by that is if we're spending more of our time trying to explain what it is that we've done, it will already you know, create this division between the, the end user and those that are building that product. So for me, one of the, you know, some of the few challenges, and, and I said it in the very beginning, is around making it real. And so few questions that that any organization should be asking themselves and what we certainly did and and continue to do is ask is your organizational culture ready for this 
and and again that starts with with your people that starts with those that are building as well as those that are potentially going to use these products we talked about strategy and integration so your data strategy and your business strategy have to be integrated together that starts top down and you know going back to that seamless integration do your customers trust and understand how to use these products and so the the better and the more seamless you can make that user experience you know the the quicker that adoption will be i think coupling that with explainability and being able to be transparent around some of the decisions that your model has made creates that that openness and creates that dialogue which builds trust and, and trust is certainly a, a key word with that. I think the the other thing, and it might not be necessarily on the adoption, but it is very important because it's part of what makes the product is, and as we talked about in the earlier uh, piece of the of the interview, is around team capability and having the the talent and the the teamwork the culture to executing on the promise. We talked about the, the fail, a lot of the failed innovation labs. There's certainly the different reasons for it. One of the things that we have found is certainly on managing expectations. And, you know, with a lot of the, the, the conversations that are happening around artificial intelligence and, you know, all of the, the buzz around it also sometimes comes with a lot of, false expectations that need to be managed. And part of that is is building a team that knows how to execute on this end to end. And that's very difficult. So if you and if you don't have that, then potentially you're you're setting yourself up for having expectations that the team can't meet, then that product doesn't deliver on that. It doesn't add value. And thus your users, your customers uh, have already lost that trust that this can add value to their day-to-day business. And so all of these are kind of these key ingredients to success. And when you remove one of those, it certainly changes the end results. And, and that then creates a massive roadblock when it comes to adopting these products. Well, here we are at the last segment of the show, and that means it's time for the fintech jail. This is where our guest submits a term, a trend, a technology, or something else in the industry that gets on their nerves and tells us why it should be locked away for good. Sharon and I will then debate whether it deserves a place in the jail. Uh, So, Matt, what have you brought with you? What term do you think needs uh, sending down this week? Yes, so... I, I fully expect a bit of controversy on this one, but I had to bring it up. It's certainly one that I think about and completely ties with what we've been talking about. Um, and that is artificial intelligence. That is the, 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 I can't say one word, it's two words that I'm bringing to FinTech jail. But let me explain why I'm doing that. So making artificial intelligence real takes key pieces of a formula. Think of it as a recipe. And so recipe number one 
is do you have the talent to building this the, these types of products that are built off of artificial intelligence? Do you have the culture that it can enable that? And again, culture is not just on the team that is building that, but it's also the organizational culture to adopting it. Number three is data and a lot of data. Uh, artificial intelligence is, is data hungry. And then last but not least, because you have all this data and, and these tools, you also need the infrastructure to supporting that. Without any one of those four key pieces, it is extremely difficult. Even with those four pieces, it is very difficult to making artificial intelligence real. And that's artificial narrow intelligence you know, to where we are today. And so why then am I bringing this to FinTech jail? You hear AI, artificial intelligence on a day-to-day -day basis. But when you really scan and look to see how many companies in the world, and then you look at the, the market capitalization of those companies that have those key ingredients to making artificial intelligence real, uh, those numbers of companies really dwindle down to only a handful. And so I think what we need as, as an industry and as a community is better ways of vetting, better ways of identifying companies that are really using artificial intelligence. And this, the, the reason of that and the importance of that is removing potential confusion and thus inefficiencies in the market when it comes to using it, when it comes to partnering with the right companies. And those inefficiencies have a lot of impact to, to businesses, has a lot of impact to people. And so I would really like to see us use the terminology better, but also have a better understanding and a better vetting of companies that, that are claiming to be using artificial intelligence because again, it really comes back to those four key ingredients. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's it's, in it's interesting that uh, you know we have a big chat about AI, and then you want to throw it in the jail at the end. But um, I, I I I agree to an extent. I, I think the thing that uh, great to me, I agree with pretty much everything you said. That there is a lot of companies out there that use artificial intelligence as a buzzword in the same way that companies use blockchain to inflate their valuation. And when blockchain was uh, and Bitcoin were riding high. Uh, oh, it's, such, it's such a big term that it covers so much. But I, I suppose this is the fintech jail. It's not, you know, the artificial intelligence in various other applications jail. So uh, I don't know. Um, uh, Sharon, what do you think? Oh, this one is a, it's a tough one. Um, I mean, I, I like your recipe analogy. I think that's, that's quite cool. Um, but yeah, so the thing is, even if you have a better system of vetting like who does AI and who doesn't, you'll still end up using the term AI. It's just like a more efficient use of it. Um, so with this one, I'm, I don't think I'm going to put it in the jail. Um, I'll definitely give it parole. I think this is one of those ones that we have to keep an eye out on and, and call out those people who, or businesses rather, who are using this term wrong. I think if, the media and the financial industry can start using it correctly, then perhaps we can have a chance of saving this term. Um, so, so yeah, that that's what I think is just putting it on on parole. Um, it's on a watch list. Yeah, it's like on a watch list, right? Um, yeah, Does, is that going to be okay, Matt? Do you think? No, it definitely needs time. 
hard time. Um, or you you cool with it? I, I, I like I like the term parole. I think parole is a good one. No, but in in all seriousness, I think you you hit the you know a lot of the essence of, of where I was going after. So I I can go with parole. Well, there we go. Bang the gable is going in 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 the. Uh... In on the watch list, we're watching you, AI. You hate yourself. <laughs> or we, we'll be coming back for you. <laughs> we'll be back. Well, that's all we have time for for this episode of What the Fintech. Thanks to Sharon and Matt for joining me this week. Uh, before we sign off, though, uh, we're going to give everyone a chance to plug some socials or websites or projects. Uh, Matt, as the guest, perhaps you'd like to go first. Sure. The, the best way to find me is on LinkedIn, Matthew Sattler, HSBC. That's definitely the best way to find me. Excellent. Uh, Sharon, what about you? You can find me at Fintech Kits. I do have a Twitter handle. I do see people who retweet this and then they like miss me out. But I do have Twitter. It is at fintech, K-I-T-S, all one word. All right, guys, I'm online. I'm an online person. Um, And then you can hit me up on LinkedIn, of course. Um, That seems to be a favorite for people to just randomly hit me up with, again, zero mutuals. I'm fine with it. I'm down a clown. But don't be in my messages, though. You gotta be, gotta be interesting for that. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're both extremely online. Um, I'm easy to find. I'm at ad hamilton ninety one, uh, and on LinkedIn, just by searching my name, uh, you should be able to find me by looking for fintech futures. I do have a very common and famous name, unfortunately for me. <laughs> uh, as for fintech futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com on Twitter at at Fintech Futures and on LinkedIn just by searching for Fintech Futures and looking for our lovely logo with the two Fs. If you happen to like this podcast, great. Uh, Please feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service. Uh, We'd also really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find uh, What the Fintech by by writing a review or recommending us to a friend. Uh, And as always, thank you very much for your support. Uh, We'll see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, we're all going to have cold showers to escape the heat. And we'll see you for another episode of What the Fintech soon. But until then, goodbye.